Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, The Other Side NDE, where we talk about the fascinating phenomena of near-death experiences. These are more than just close calls. These are first-hand accounts of what people experienced dying, leaving the body, exploring another realm, and then returning to their body in order to share that experience with you. Every person that we interview, and many of us listeners, believe these accounts to be undeniably true experiences people had on the other side. If you enjoy listening to stories like these, make sure to check out our YouTube channel, The Other Side NDE, where we post two to three videos every week of people sharing their NDE stories. Hi, my name is Jim Bruton. I live in Connecticut and Other Side Media asked me to join you today to share my near-death experience. You know, it can be kind of a, a wide subject to just jump in and talk about. So I've narrowed it down to saying, you know, here are the five truths from my experience that have impacted my life. I'll talk about my background, the near-death experience itself, and then basically the five truths that I would say could be best distilled from the experiences. Beginning with my background, I guess because it's been pretty wide and varied, I would just describe it as one where, you know, I've realized a lot of my childhood dreams. For instance, when I was a boy growing up in the 1960s, I loved watching black and white television shows about animals and the conservation efforts that helped them. Well, now I have an Emmy for the work I did in producing a National Geographic documentary while living in Africa. You know, as a little boy growing up in the 1960s, when we were in this big race against the Russians to get to the moon, there were a lot of utopian visions of the future. Moon tourism in the year 2000, just basically you have flying saucers in every garage and things like that. And I just knew with my imagination, I wanted to be part of it. And since then, I redesigned the way video and data can be transmitted by using small satellite antennas, basically shrinking a satellite TV truck into a backpack. And I was the first person in the world to do it. And uh, I had tested it with Bell Laboratories, the people who invented the dial tone. And they first said, oh, it won't work. And I said, well, I've got a prototype in the car. And it worked. So that was kind of fun. Later, I integrated my system with these biometrics that were destined for the International Space Station. Uh, you could wear them or even swallow them. And we've tested them twice up at Mount Everest. So that was you know, another accomplishment. I love sci-fi, so I got to live sci-fi. Another thing is my father learned to fly when I was in the first grade. So 
with that, you know, and riding in the back seat for probably 10,000 hours by the time I graduated high school, I learned to love flight. But really, the most fundamental dream I had that flowed without interruption to right now was uh, my desire to know God. I found Western approaches as I was growing up in the South in the 1960s, wanting in the differences between what they preached and what they lived. For instance, you know, God timed my two visits on consecutive Sundays to see the parish throw their minister out on the street because he did the unthinkable. He married his daughter, who was half Cherokee, to a black man. On that day, God taught me two things that any honor man bestows, man can take away, and that he who does not have a temple in his heart will never find his heart in any temple. On that day, I chose not to walk the ways of man, but to have a direct personal relationship with God. So what follows here is the fulfillment of that faith. That brings us to my near-death experience. So, as I mentioned, I love building these old airplanes, these historical reproductions. My second aircraft, which almost looked like something out of a Disney cartoon, it was called a Flying Flea, it was from 1933 in France. Well, on its second test flight, which was on October 6th, 2016, I um, took off, I did a round across the airfield, and then on my second trip, I lost my engine and there wasn't a lot of time to react to that because being a vintage aircraft didn't glide as well as the modern aircraft. So when you cut power, it came down quickly. I couldn't make it back to my airfield. I was in a very forested, hilly and rocky area. So the only place I could hope to get to was a small lake in a nearby Boy Scout camp. So I aimed for that, overshot the bank crashed into all the tree trunks, again, in the equivalent of a soapbox derby cart around 70 miles an hour. I can still find where I crashed because of all the scratch marks on the tree trunks from my wings breaking off. Because it was an all wood aircraft, when I stopped crashing, it was pretty much just all matchsticks around me. The only part of the airplane that was still intact was what was behind me that I was still seat belted to. Luckily, there was a retired police officer fishing in this Boy Scout camp because at that time of year in October, it was closed. So he was there because it was, you know, nice, peaceful and quiet until people crash airplanes. But he luckily was the kind of guy who wouldn't freak out seeing all this and seeing me in the crash. So he called 911, kept me propped up for this reason. I broke all my ribs, I ruptured both lungs. My right leg had multiple fractures. I had a hole in my lower back from the engine battery breaking loose and hitting me again probably 70 miles an hour. And I was just really beat up and I couldn't breathe because I really didn't have functioning lungs. I was more gasping for air. But he called 911. They sent out a helicopter that came maybe 30 or 45 minutes later. They pulled me out of what was left of the aircraft and flew me up to Hartford, Connecticut's trauma center where there was a waiting team. A few hours later, my family arrived at the hospital and found me in a breathing machine as my lungs didn't work. And I was intubated with other tubes coming in and going out of my body. And um, all these were keeping me alive. I'd already escaped the restraints uh, that my, limited my efforts to remove the tubing. The medical team advised my family that with a week's worth of day-long operations scheduled, some with only a 2% chance of success, that the best course of action would be to place me into a medically induced coma. 
They readily agreed, and so that's what the doctors did. As best as logic can serve, I think that's when my near-death experience began. As far as how long it lasted, I can't say, but I can say I was in the coma for a week. And I can say that while I was on the other side, I was very, very busy. So here is my near-death experience. So for me, it was more like I teleported up onto the terrace of a tall building. It was very open and everything was gray as if made out of concrete and in ruins. Uh, buildings stretched out into the distance, each partially destroyed, but weaving together to create a post-apocalyptic skyline. And there was no sound of any sort. It was just that quiet. As I looked up in the sky, I could see these clouds really dark and heavy with the mother of all storms ready to unload everything they had. Everything. The ruined buildings, the storm-ready sky, and even the air itself seemed to be waiting with incredible tension. Suddenly, a wave of nausea ran through my stomach, and I doubled over in pain and grabbed my gut. And I remember whispering aloud, I don't think I can stand this. And with those words, I sent something to my left. And what I saw was one of the strangest sculptures I've ever seen. Standing out against the darkest parts of the brooding sky was a large egg-shaped sculpture made out of latticework of metal. And I could see within it these small whirling patterns, and I could hear their whispering movements slow down within. This interruption of the place's absolute stillness I knew was due to my spoken words, and somehow I knew this thing and I were connected. Still feeling my stomach gripped in pain, I, I rose to my feet and did my best to walk over to this monolith. As I looked through that open latticework, I could see gears inside. They were suspended freely in space, but they were anchored and pivoting around an invisible, unique pivot point that defined their sweeping arcs of movement. I noticed that these were what they call sector gears, the kind you see in clock-like mechanisms. As I watched the gears just sort of idly moving for a moment. I could see that some were very real and definite and others were more ghost-like and they would pass through each other, physically impossible manner. And I remember saying, what is this thing? I said that out loud. And a disembodied voice responded within my consciousness and it stayed with me throughout the entire experience. It said, this is the future birthing into the now and that otherworldly dance of the gears were very complex, like a multidimensional model of time. And they came to rest, and I reached through a gap in the side of the egg, and as I did so, it said, this is the process of becoming. And as I looked at the gears within my mind, I could see something like a video feed of what were future events. Yeah, I might see myself as older, I might see my kids with their children, things like this that hadn't happened yet. And as I, reached my hand through to see if I could touch them, because like I said, some were very definite and some were very ghost-like. I just want to say, gosh, can I feel them? One brushed by my hand and instantly I doubled over in pain again, that nausea in my stomach. With a reflex, I ripped it out, pulling it through the latticework and I threw it away. And as it did that, all the gears went crazy, spinning around, spinning around. Basically, they were recalibrating for the loss of one. And I said, what's happening now? And the voice said, each gear is the probability of a thought, word, or action in your future. Your destiny is resetting itself around what you have removed. I said, how did I know I could do that? Pull that gear out, removing that future moment. And the voice said, why else are you here? 
I said, I have no idea. I don't even know what this place is. They said, you're in the in-between. I said, in-between what? I said, everything. The impossible now between the past and the future. And I said something like, that makes no sense whatsoever. And I said, it's impossible in its short duration. Yet here you are standing inside the eternity of a single moment. Do you remember who you are in the world to which you belong? And I promise you, if somebody had come up to me at that moment and said, do you remember the world to which your body belongs? Or do you remember, you know, if you stay any longer, you can't go back. I'd say, go back where? To your family. What family? I really had no idea. I was so present and actually so depersonalized. Everything was stripped away of who I thought I was. And I said, I have no idea. And then the voice said, you see now the truth in how the past is dust. I said, okay. Why do some of these gears, these futures that I touch, make me sick and not others? And it said, all choices have unintended consequences, some unfortunate and some not. The pain each brings is your guide. I said, where are the gears that feel good? And it said, you're not here to feel good. And I, a new gear then swung into view. And on this one, I saw a Ferris wheel with happy grandchildren who aren't born yet whizzing by, their fingers holding onto the car and they smiled at me or threw me, looking off into their own world. Obviously, I let that gear pass by and I didn't remove it. More gears then emerged within view, some passing through others, several, again, clear and definite, many less so and hard to focus on. But each one that I looked at had their clear images, that video feed of their meaning. And each time they came to rest, I would reach around and pull out a gear that I could feel by my pain to be to my future detriment. It's like these unintended consequences, the pain of bad, not wrong, because you can make a mistake and it's not a sin, but these wrong decisions were what were causing the pain. And this pain, it's as if someone said, let's just cut the crap and feel the pain of making that decision now, and that will be your guide. And so that's kind of what I did. And at one point I looked at the growing pile of gears behind me and I asked, it's starting to look like if I don't have a bad future, I have no future at all. I said, even though I now feel less pain because I'm cleaning up my future, stacking the deck, if you will. I said, am I going to die sooner from doing all this? The voice said, your destiny has to fit itself around futures that aren't meant to be. Your number of breaths are already counted. I will worry about your last one. I said, I don't know how comforting that is. And it said, eliminating bad choices doesn't mean you won't make wrong ones. You won't know they are wrong until after they pass, since right and wrong are variables over which you have no control. The answers to what come tomorrow are a waste. Better is understanding the beauty of how everything fits and refits together. It's basically telling me, have faith in the grand design. And I said, what am I missing here in my lack of understanding? It was quite obvious that I was only perceiving or understanding a tenth, if that, of what was there. It said, what is clearly before you? Grace. No one deserves salvation. It can only be given by grace. It is your birthright, but it must be chosen at the expense of the world that separates us. I said, well, this fixing my future is painful. And I feel ashamed I'm not doing it with some moral compass. I'm only guided by pain. I don't even know where or when these futures happen. I said, where or when are not important. 
removing your enthusiasm to further chain yourself to the world isn't as painful as carrying the crushing weight of those chains once forged around you. So it's as if this place were made so I can do one thing and one thing only with no chance to screw it up. And the voice then said, if those with choices make poor use of them, then offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. You can't change the past, but you can make better choices in the future. Everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. Be gentle with everyone as I am gentle with you. And I thought about my pain and I said, gentle, what's gentle about all this? He said, you prayed for something for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. With that, I looked up at the stone gray sky and then out across the seemingly dead and abandoned city. I looked back to the egg and reaching out, placed my hand on it and I said, I think I can live with this now. And with that, it pretty much booted me out. I woke up in a hospital and uh, I was told by the doctors I was in a plane crash and they ran down the list of all my injuries. And I discovered I was put into a coma on my arrival and that was for one week. And for that entire time, I believe I was in the in-between and didn't stop yanking out gears until I left. So what does that mean? One thing that's interesting is as I lay there with this just going over and over my head, remember, I just came out of the coma. I've just come out of this experience. So I was laying there and it was as if the, the memory of what I've just shared with you was cycling through my mind. And with each iteration, there was more depth to it. There was more oomph to it. it there was mo more of an emotional impact, if you will. And I'm like, what is this? I figured, okay, I've had an out-of-body experience being somewhat conversant with Eastern ways, but I still really didn't have a name for it. I, I don't think I knew that this was what a near-death experience was. So it just went over and over in my head. And I would say at this point, I mean, let's face it, if some big experience happens to you, you're gonna spend a huge part of your life, maybe the rest of your life, trying to integrate it into your normal life. Like, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for everything? And so the best thing I could do was just sort of say this distilled down into, I'd say five of the most fundamental truths. So starting with the first one, you know, it's like return. Uh, what is the best version of myself? And this is a question I'm sure we could ask ourselves any day of the year. And so I remember as I woke up, I saw this photo of me taped to the wall. It was obviously put there by someone who wanted me to remember who I was in an effort of encouragement and healing. And this photo was kind of like a, a match.com photo, if you will. It was me in Northern Afghanistan smoking cigars with uh, the tribesmen who had just delivered some belts of uh, um, metric equivalent of 50 caliber to so they could fight the Taliban. And, you know, for a lot of people, I say, yeah, that's Jim the badass. You know, that's the best version of, of Jim. And I was like, who's that? Yeah, you know, I looked at the photo and thought about how many lifetimes ago that already was. To those who knew me, yeah, that would be the best version of myself because that's how the world would measure it. But over the next few days, I began to feel differently about that man in the picture. And instinctively, I was coming to see that my best version was not that, but was the depersonalized conscious being in the in-between stripped of everything. Knowing neither joy nor sorrow, but flowing in the now, 
that impossible now beyond time in that state of letting go. So laying there in the hospital, coming to grips with my NDE, my mind suddenly began conversing with the in-between. The representation of alcohol was removed from me and held up for consideration. As far as I know, I'm not an alcoholic and I start drinking until I was 42 and it'd be just the occasional rum and coke in coming home from stressful day. And the in-between literally asked me if I wanted to take it with me into my future or leave it behind. It said, if I wanted to keep it as part of my life, then it, the in-between, would carry it for me. If I wanted to leave it in my past, then it would remove all attachment and it would have no pull on me. I immediately said without hesitation, I'd leave it behind. And the voice then said, all right. And the representation simply evaporated from sight. Not had a drink since, nor am I inclined to. I can sit in a bar with people drinking, can go to a wine store on the way to someone's house, take something, but it never occurs to me to do it. Drinking alcohol, something other people do. It just doesn't really apply to me. And so I would say that was my first real taste in the power of letting go, which brings us to truth number two. What is the art of letting go? Well, whatever answer I could give, putting it in context, I'd say while the world chases the next big thing, what if we tried a different approach? If we don't like it, we can always ditch it and go back to scratching the dirt like everyone else, swapping stories of how we know someone who knows someone who heard of someone else who made it. And to me, life isn't about chasing the next big thing. It's about letting go. It's totally the opposite. If you look the phrase up, you'll find it is an art of doing something so ephemeral as nothing. But that's exactly what it is. It's about detachment of owning your power to make good choices moment by moment that reduce the number of bad potential choices and their outcomes. It's about realizing that power within you. It's an understanding that has no context. It's simply a state of knowing that gives rise to meaning and meaning backs into our individual lives to give us some sense of our unique purpose. This detachment helps with the depersonalizing process I met before, which allows you to remove yourself from the equation, from the content of the processes flowing around you. It gives you a more objective view. You're not the center of any particular universe. And once you understand this, you see that little of what anyone is doing has much to do with you personally anyway. The tip of an iceberg is what we see, but our appreciation of it is hidden from the 90% we cannot see. A dual mind, think of dual mind and and non-dual thinking. Well, a dual mind is where something is simplistically only this or that. These binary polarities of it's us or them, it's good or bad, you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, whatever. So we argue and struggle to reconcile those polarities. Meditation and open-mindedness need to a non-dual state of mind, where we think in terms of and instead of or. That simple change of perspective changes the world, us and them, not us or them. Taoism, for example, represents the polarities of yin and yang the complement of each as a seed of the opposite within. To let go, start by allowing choices to unfold naturally. Wait as long as you can before choosing to allow other possibilities to fully mature. This allows for the arrival of new information at the last minute that might impact your decision. And with your stillness, create your vacuum and then release it in a chosen direction. This is what is done when you are still present and you understand how you really feel. Know 
what it is you need. And that creates the vacuum. Now aim that vacuum with your intention, like an archer. Release it and think no more of it, or you'll no longer be present. The arrow will travel to the target on its own. Shoot your arrow because you love shooting at the target. The outcome, winning a prize, is a totally different thing and distracts you from shooting perfectly. You have to choose between the process of shooting the bow for joy and the content of winning a prize. Just focus on shooting and the outcome will take care of itself. And let go of the outcomes. That's the next thing. You don't have to see or know all possible choices you can make in the future. You might not yet know what they are. All you need to know is whether they feel neutral or good or bad, kind of like me sorting gears out in the in-between. They feel bad if they run counter to your values and emotions, dismiss them. To do that, you have to be honest with yourself. Spiritual studies and quantum physics state that every moment is infinite with probabilities. Our conscious decisions continually collapsing one of them into defining our present reality. It's at our still point of meditation where we become present that we realize we're within the center of all probabilities. It's like standing in a river, just letting the current and what it carries go around you without grabbing anything. If you create the right meditation space in which to simply breathe, you will naturally become more and more contemplative. It doesn't mean you do, it means you are. And this is how you pray without ceasing. And once you live a prayerful life, you'll never have to pray again. Another perspective is that when you live life as a question, you no longer seek answers. You seek awakening. Some things then naturally fall away. And if they can only be expressed in this plane, then as they fall away, so do our attachments holding us here. If you can find a community or even a teacher you resonate with, then you can test this in their company over time. Do you perceive a change in how you think and feel about things? If the familiar attachments surface in your mind less and less, you may want to spend more time with these people. It may not be so much what they say or do. It may be more like one tuning fork and another. If one is of the same frequency as the other, you hit one and the other one will also start to vibrate. What effort was required in that? Nothing. So as you become still, you awaken into what I would call observer mode. In the observer mode, you know, it's not like you're judging or predicting or really attached to it. You are just watching. So think of a cat sitting in front of a mouse hole in the wall. As it waits, unblinking, it isn't distracted by anything. It's attentive and engaged, but still and silent, just waiting. There is a readiness to move in an instant based on its curiosity of when that mouse will reappear. And that's how we sit in meditation or walk or drive or live. Don't just consider the question of life, but feel it and all its perplexity. There are many types of meditation. I'm not sure what the best one is. You know, some people sit, some people lay down, some walk, some practice, you know, yoga postures, or they do Tai Chi, which has motion. Just find the one that feels right for you. I'd go for drives and practice it as best you can. Don't be too hard on yourself when your mind resists. If it does, bargain with it. Say, if you give me these five minutes, I'll give you five minutes after. 
And do so, honor your bargain. Give the intensity and stimulation hungry mind this, you know, what it wants. Make a friend of it. And one day it will remind you to go meditate. Why? Because it wants what comes after. Increase your time beyond five minutes. Once you build that trust with the mind, and then there's a chance it can become a good companion. Lao Tzu, who wrote the Tao Te Ching in Taoism said, to the mind which becomes still, the entire universe will surrender. Truth number three, I mentioned a little while ago about dual and non-dual thinking. Another way is also calling it linear and non-linear thinking. Linear being we think in steps and non-linear means we think more broadly. It, for example, a, the usual question would be who robbed the bank? Linear thinking would pursue answers through a step-by-step -step process that have go-no-go -no -go gates, if you will, at each conclusion of a step, deciding whether to move on or go around again. And thinking this way is pretty much about the black and white of things. Binary thinkers miss seeing an opportunity or reaching a compromise. It's because some patterns of information are invisible to them because they are inside the box thinkers. Part of the process is defining the problem, which means defining the box and then working on it usually from the inside. So what happens to your problem solving journey if your primary assumptions or procedures break down? And yet, this is how most of the world thinks. It's also impossible to think or process information this way when you're present. The better question would be, why do people rob banks? Nonlinear thinking brings understanding by promoting thinking and problem solving that extends in an outward expansion spiral versus that linear approach. It provides multiple starting points from which you can study or enter a problem and you start to see different ways through it. Rather than trying to solve that surface symptom, you start looking at causes. Most problems are caused by other problems stacked on top anyway. And linear thinking keeps the mind sliding on that surface, just going around in a circle. Whereas non-linear thinking goes deeper, spiraling through those different perspectives, revealing other aspects of consideration. It's also a more evolved way of thinking. It's natural to think this way when being present. Instead of following the breadcrumbs, you can see the loaf. Your awareness of this emerges when you realize you aren't using your memory to understand things. You don't need memory to perceive a complex and dynamic pattern moving in front of you. When you're really present, it's with no memory of the past or anticipation of the future. It's with your intuition. It's like flying without a net. And here's an example. When we hear someone speak, their words give us answers. But from their nonverbal communication emerge patterns of meaning. We realize that the shorter extended silence between their words is full of information. Add to this their nuance, inflections, and body language, and you have a more complete picture of what they really want to tell you. By looking at patterns, you discover the underlying formula, if you will, that things and events use for their birth, their duration, and their expiration. DNA may look like a thing, but the information inherent is what translates it into generations of unfolding. You must disengage from the excitement of the moment to observe the patterns operating beneath. I've chewed on this for a long time, gaining new insights into problem solving, varying my approaches to a question, and how intuition needs to be developed and trusted in perceiving deeper truths in any situation. Became aware of how our intuition is greater than we can know. Or said another way, 
I've become aware of how our ability to intuit is greater than our ability to know. That's why the death of a spouse can be the most stressful event the living spouse can experience. But a near-death experience of the spouse is the most stressful event a marriage itself can go through. 78% of NDEers are divorced. Now, that's beyond the already epidemic. 53% of normal people. Uh, so anyway, you know, because the NDEer is integrating their experience into their life through intuition, while the non-experiencing spouse is trying to understand what it means to them and the marriage through knowing and with no reference points for orientation, it really puts a point on the difference in linear and non-linear perspectives. Last year, in early 2021, I went to bed, but slept fitfully all night long. As the depth of sleep is measured in stages, it was as if I couldn't get past stage one the entire night. Then around three or four o'clock in the morning, my consciousness was presented with several pages, like out of a book. And they were suspended in the air in front of me in an orderly left to right, top down matrix. I could see that there were words on the pages, but either my eyes or the words were out of focus. I understood I was being shown the pages of what would be my second book, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. But I wasn't allowed to read the words because that would be cheating. They hadn't been written yet. As I looked at the pages, my perception was switched by an influence outside me from the linear seeing of the words to the non-linear pattern-based seeing. And in that viewpoint, I gave more prominence to the rivers of white as the flowing spaces between the words are called. Then my mind began flipping back and forth between linear, non-linear, linear, non-linear, non noticing the words and seeing the spaces between them. I was shown that information is in the words, but understanding is in the spaces between the words. The words are you and the spaces are me. This is analogous to when people speak and how their non-verbal communication helps us understand the information in their verbal delivery. Even the properly timed pause grants us an extra second or two for the light bulb to go off. I knew I was being told how to write my book, embedding that perspective into the pages. And that's why so much of my second book, which is called The Practice in Between, is written in a way that presents what are essentially one-line paragraphs. The desire is to give the reader an extra half moment between sentences to chew on what I just said in the last paragraph. And as I typed the book, I instinctively wanted to spread the words out that way, but I wasn't sure why until I realized, oh, I'm following the blueprint that was given me. So that was pretty cool. Truth number four, being authentic and how even atheists can be spiritual. I wrote my first book after my NDE, uh, which was your, sort of your classic formula, right? You know, here was my exciting life I had before my um, near-death experience. Here was the near-death experience I've already shared with you. And then here's how I approached different aspects of life and coming to grips with what I had experienced in, com in comparison to what I thought I knew before. And then the second book uh, was based on people coming back to me and saying, how do we put what you're saying into practice? And that's why it's called The Practice in Between, The Art of Letting Go. So as I wrote that first book after my ND, I was very aware that while God wants to have a relationship with us, he doesn't force us into one. If you want to ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist, 
your lifespan is so cosmically short that in a moment you'll be you'll return in the blink of an eye of an 80-year lifetime and the truth will be self-evident it's that clear and if you're right and there is a god he's not the type who's going to rub your nose in anything and if you're wrong and this is all there is there's no one there to do any rubbing i've also felt the truth of you can't row in two boats at once if you're talking to god about your choices you may as well say i want to you know, live a questionable life because I like sports cars, the money, attractive sexual partners, and so on. And I think in such a conversation, as you can see in outer life, God would just say, well, you have free will and you can make whatever choices you want. That's really what you want to do. Then go and see how well it works out for you. And when you're done, come back. I'm not going anywhere. Extending this thought, I've come to believe that even if you're an atheist, but you live your life authentically, then you can be living it spiritually, or at least laying the foundation to do so. There are many people who say they believe in God, but they don't live a life that demonstrates the choices or sacrifices you would expect if you were making the same declarations. And you don't have to look far to find examples. But what about the people who do own their shortcomings, who don't justify them or dismiss their bad choices offhandedly, but totally own who they are, warts and all? Isn't there a humility there that makes such a person worth learning from? Let me clarify, I'm thinking generally about people who may be different or even quirky, but aren't dangerous to our physical safety or mental health. How unusual is it for us to challenge them about something in their behavior and with a disar disarming authenticity, they acknowledge it, confirming it needs further work. Like, hey, you're really making bad choices and you're screwing your life up. I mean, some of these people might get all defensive and say, well, you don't understand, you don't know what you're talking about. And some might just look at you and say, yeah, I know, but it's bigger than me and I can't help it. And I mean, that's so mind blowing, you know? For me, I'd rather know where you stand and hear you own your own faults than hide the issues behind our love for a shared goal or dislike of a common enemy. At least then, like I said, I know where you stand. I might even find solidarity, solidarity with you, even though, you know, what, what's going on in your life is nothing that's going on in mine. Think about this. If you're setting an example for countless people who have the courage to address their own shortcomings and get to work on their growth, that there are people watching you more than you know. And so you're actually helping more than you can imagine. Living authentically goes back to Socrates. Man, know thyself. This is why I've told my kids not to ask, where is my perfect girlfriend or my perfect boyfriend? But they should ask themselves, how do I need to be loved? Don't ask what you should do for a living, but ask what makes me happy and feel engaged. Don't ask, what is my purpose in life? Ask what the meaning of life is as you see it. And then back that into the question of what your unique purpose is, given your unique interests and abilities. What resonates with you? Are there consistent patterns of self-sabotage you engage in? What brings out the best or worst in you? Honest self-reflection reveals ways in which we can do better. And that is thinking authentically. Put this knowledge into practice, maybe first in avoiding situations that have trigger buttons that turn you into, you know, from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And Note that you know a good test of authenticity is when people talk about saving the world. Some say peace, some say war, some say you know force compliance, and a few say communicate. But saving the world starts at home, at the kitchen table, 
on the knee of a parent or at the feet of a grandparent, then it grows into living a life in the spirit of service to others, no matter your job or career. It's the spirit that counts. Doing the things that make you feel connected to other people, perhaps helping those less fortunate. Sometimes leading from behind, allowing others to think it was their idea. Sharing the spotlight whenever possible, for no one arrived where they are alone. I'm not saying to become passive and let people walk all over you. Some fights are worth fighting, if not for yourself, then for others. But see the world for what it is. See relationships for the temporary comforts of distraction or distractions they are. And remember that all of us are just passing through. It's been said that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So how do you know when you're ready? Many are those who say, show me the way. But few are those who say, please take me by the hand and lead me because I am blind. It should be clear to anyone that those who only want to be shown are still too proud to be led. Their ego isolates them from the truth. And that's why the world has always been imperfect and always will be. How many people have you seen need to brag about how much they know about something? They need to be the smartest kid in the room. It even happens when they go before a spiritual person asking for guidance or a spiritual apprenticeship. You know, whether you want to become an apprentice to a master craftsman or a disciple of the Lord himself, save everyone the time by, and, and you the embarrassment, by not telling them how much you think you already know. In the grand scheme of things, you know what you know. You do not know what they know. Acknowledge that what you think you know would be embarrassingly small in comparison and save yourself that humiliation. Just ask for what you want. And what is it we think we know? We yearn to know and we're dying to know. And that brings us to the last truth, number five, letting go. One of the things I, I discovered in going to my first near-death experience conference in 2019 was that when two in the ears meet, we don't usually need an introduction. It's like we recognize something within us immediately. In a moment, we're in deep and personal conversation, comparing notes of our lives here on earth. If we don't see each other for a long time, we still have a sense of connection that connects us, um, you know, over time and distance. And sometimes we feel the emotional state of each other from very far away. No effort is needed to establish that connection or to maintain it. Like I said, the two vibrating tuning forks our mutually resonating tuning forks keep each other going no matter where we are. If you ask me, what is the meaning of life? I have no answer because you are life. What else can I add? Just walk it, discover it, and realize that you are nothing you were told you are. And when you die, everything you think you are is left at the door. You are more. You are everything. And when you've asked all your questions, and when there's nothing left to be gained, where all roads end, there God begins. Thank you. We all fall in when the